great to see a Purpose Church. What a great 2020 we are going to have. Uh, we are just waiting for the approval by the fire department of our revised plans. And so, Lord willing, we can get into our new worship, brand new worship center. And then, Lord willing, we will finally celebrate our 150th birthday in our 152nd year. Uh, that's going to be the phrase uh, for 2020, Lord willing. That's going to be our buzzword around here at Purpose Church. You know, a great passage for the past two years is James 4, verses 13 through 15. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money, do renovations, move into our worship center. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, is it going to be a pandemic? Is it going to be something else that we don't even know about? Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it is the Lord's will. So Lord willing is our phrase for 2022, whether it's renovations or COVID or whatever else uh, the Lord has in store for us. Now, one final word on COVID. <clears throat> I may have a little bit of a cough uh, today, and you can maybe hear it in my voice. Uh, had a little bit of a, a thing after the holidays, but I have tested negative for COVID. So you are no danger of catching what I've got through uh, your television or through your computer monitor. But I did want you to know, um, kidding aside, that I've tested negative for COVID. And I want to share something, speaking of COVID, um, uh, that somebody sent me, Janet Lucas from our church family uh, sent this to me. It's from Martin Luther uh, 500 years ago. And you know, every once in a while you have something you've been struggling with and you've been making decisions on. And then you'll get a book or an article. Have you ever done this? Uh, you've wrestled with an issue. And then all of a sudden you get an article and you're like, oh, that captures exactly what, what, I, what we've been doing or what we've been thinking. And I couldn't believe how what uh, Martin Luther, the great theologian, the great pastor, the great preacher from half a millennia ago, 505 centuries ago, just really <clears throat> came up perfectly with our approach uh, to COVID here at Purpose Church. He said, and by the way, this is during the bubonic plague. So this is his response leading his church during the bubonic plague in the 1500s. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I will fumigate, purify the air, administer medicine, and take medicine. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. But I've done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely. This is God-fearing faith because it is neither brash or foolhardy and does not tempt God. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, written during the bubonic plague of the 1500s. And I thought, really, that just so beautifully summarized uh, our approach here at Purpose Church 
and, and the balance of things that God has uh, led us to do here over uh, the last couple of years. But let's continue to pray that God will continue to give us wisdom. Okay, let's launch into our new series, Seeing Jesus Through the Eyes of Luke. Today, we're going to talk about the greatest movement in world history is launched. The greatest movement in world history, the biggest movement in world history. Uh, as Pastor Eric said in a sermon last Sunday, uh, over 31% of the world's population now followers of Jesus, almost 2.4 billion people, uh, the greatest, the biggest, the most diverse. Every other religion is centered mainly in one part of the world. Islam is centered mainly in the Middle East, uh, Buddhism in the Far East, um, Hinduism in India. Uh, only uh, with followers of Christ uh, are they in every nook and cranny of the world. I was reading one research institute who said that followers of Jesus are so far flung, in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably claim to be the center of global Christianity. Uh, we're everywhere. We're not just located in certain places. And, and this pervasiveness, it's, it's been true through somewhat throughout world history, but particularly in the last hundred years, you can't say where the center of it is. You know, is it in the United States? Is it in Europe? Is it in Rome? It just over the last century, this is a relatively new phenomenon that it is so balanced and so everywhere that you can't say one location, one continent is uh, the center of global Christianity. And this has just happened within the last hundred years. You know, you think about it. Uh, Jesus was born where Africa, Asia, and Europe all come together. So as a result of that, he looked somewhat like everyone in the world. Pastor and Eric and I were talking about this the other day and how, uh, you know, he, he was in a small group and what a touching thing it was that there were some young ladies that were Egyptian in, in the group. And, and, and they said, so, so Jesus looked like me. And Pastor Eric said, yeah, he looked more like you than he looked like me. And, 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 and when I thought about that, I thought, you know, really because of the, the, where he was born, he kind of looks like all of us. We, we all can uh, identify with him. Uh, Luke was written for skeptics of the Christian faith. Uh, Luke is the first of a two-part volume uh, called Luke-Acts. Uh, Luke is about the life of Jesus, and Acts was about uh, the early church. Uh, that means that Luke wrote over one-fourth, over 25% of the New Testament. Uh, at the end of the, Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says that Luke was a doctor. And so you people in the medical field, this is your guy. He's also the only non-Jewish writer of the Bible. Uh, he was left-brained, uh, and he was one of those guys that was passionate about the facts. So if you're a left-brainer, if you're an engineer, if you're, if, if you're in the medical field, if you're a scientist, uh, Luke is your kind of guy. And you'll, you'll even see that here in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, okay? The emphasis on uh, Luke has been investigating, talking to eyewitnesses that it happened among us, that, that we personally experienced these things, just as they were 
handed down to us, okay? Carefully seeing uh, the, the chain of information from eyewitness uh, to the next generation by those who from the first, okay, were eyewitnesses. That, that's who he's interviewing. That's who he's investigating. And servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Uh, Theophilus uh, in the Greek means friend of God. We don't know who he was, but he may have been a skeptic who was trying to decide whether or not to follow Jesus. And so uh, Luke is just kind of laying the evidence out there uh, like an attorney before a jury, uh, trying to convince them beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to follow Jesus. Not, not with perfect uh, belief, but with beyond a reasonable doubt uh, belief, uh, just like you do if you've ever been on a jury. I've told you before that I was on the jury for the great Wiener Schnitzel, I think it was Montclair or Chino, I think it was Chino, the great Chino Wiener Schnitzel robbery of 2005. And so we're on this jury and these guys come in and rob the Wiener Schnitzel and uh, they were on CCTV. And so we just, there they are sitting in court, the two of them, and there they are on camera. And just in case we missed them the first time, they came back a week later and robbed the same Wiener Schnitzel. So we got a second set of, of TV monitors. There they are, and, and you can just compare them. There they are in court. There they are, you know, uh, in, uh, on the screen. And, and so am I 100% sure that the jury should have found them guilty? No, you can't know that 100%. There could be some other explanation uh, and yet we were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's what Luke is trying to do here. He's trying to, to convince Theophilus and anybody else who's reading his book beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, Luke would have just loved the fact that scientists say there's just one chance in 10 with 172 zeros after it that life in the universe could have happened by accident. Uh, he, he, he would have just... He just would have loved that kind of statistic. And so would you please forgive me uh, because I'm gonna just indulge my inner geek uh, for just a minute or two or three. So please be patient with me as I indulge my inner geek. Um, atheists can't explain that life could only happen in our universe one chance in 10 with 172 zeros. Um, and, and, and so uh, they've, they've come up with this uh, far-fetched uh, idea with no evidence behind it. It's called the multiverse theory. And it's even making its way into uh, popular culture, the idea that there are many universes. So it couldn't have happened in ours because these odds are staggering. So there much, must be a bunch of universes out there to in increase, increase the odds. And, and so in the new Spider-Man movie, if you've had a chance to see it, uh, Dr. Strange says, the multiverse is a concept about which we know frighteningly little. Now, I've got to be careful here because Dr. Strange is one of Kimberly's favorite Avengers. But I, I just need to say it. We know frighteningly little about it. We don't know anything about it because there is zero 
Uh, there is zero evidence for it. And let's go back to the, the 172 zeros. Can we just go back one side? Uh, even if it's true uh, that there are this many, that they need this many universes for life to happen by accident, but even if it's true that there's all these, this number of universes, who created the 10 followed by 172 zeros universes. I mean, even if it took that many for life to happen by accident, who created this number of universes in order for life to happen by accident? Charles Towns uh, won the Nobel Prize in physics. He writes, intelligent design as one sees it from a scientific point of view seems to be quite real. This is a very special universe. It's remarkable that it came out just this way. If the laws of physics weren't just the way they are, we couldn't be here at all. The sun couldn't be there. The laws of gravity and nuclear laws and magnetic theory and quantum mechanics and so on have to be just the way they are in order for us to be here. And this from a Nobel Prize winner in, in physics. It just couldn't have happened by chance. Luke would have loved uh, Pastor Eric's quote um, he gave last Sunday from astrophysicist Hugh Ross, where it says the Bible contains 2,500 prophecies and 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. The chances of this happening by chance are 10, one chance in 10 to the 20,000th power. There's all those zeros again. Uh, Luke also began his other volume, part two, Acts, in a very similar way. He said, in my former book, Theophilus, so it's written to the same guy, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to, to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You know, I saw something uh, recently, it's been around for a number of years, I guess, but I just came across it, uh, about Chuck Colson, who if you're my age, you remember the Watergate scandal in Washington, D.C., and, and he was one of the key members at, uh, in President Nixon's um, inner circle that was involved in Watergate. And, and he writes about this and compares it uh, to uh, the... the the, the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection. Because after it all happened, he went to prison and there he committed his life to Christ. Chuck Colson writes, the historical fact of Christ's resurrection is the only basis of our hope. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile. That is why critics of Christianity often try to explain away the empty tomb. They claim that the disciples lied, that they stole Jesus' body themselves and conspired together to pretend that he had risen. The apostles then managed somehow to recruit more than 500 other people to lie for them as well, to say they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. But just how plausible is this theory? To answer that, fast forward nearly 2,000 years to an event I happen to know a lot about, Watergate. You see, before all the facts about Watergate were made known to the public, in March of 1973, it was becoming clear to Nixon's closest aides that someone had tried to cover up the Watergate break-in. There were no more than a dozen of us. Could we maintain a cover-up to save the president? 
Consider that we were political zealots. We enjoyed enormous political power and prestige. With all that at stake, you'd expect us to be able to maintain a lie to protect the president. If these 12 men had just stuck together with their lie, they could have saved President Nixon's presidency. But we couldn't do it. The first to crack was, was John Dean. First, he told the president everything, and then just two weeks later, he went to the prosecutors and offered to testify against the president. His reason, as he candidly admits in his memoirs, was to, quote, save his own skin. After that, everyone starts scrambling to protect himself. What we know today is the great Watergate cover-up lasted for only three weeks. Some of the most powerful politicians in the world, and we couldn't keep a lie for more than three weeks. So back to the question of the historicity of Christ's resurrection. Can anyone believe that for 50 years that Jesus' disciples were willing to be ostracized, beaten, persecuted, and all but one of them suffer a martyr's death without ever renouncing their conviction that they had seen Jesus bodily resurrected? Does anybody really think the disciples could have maintained a lie all that time under that kind of pressure? No, someone would have cracked just as we did so easily in Watergate. Someone would have acted as John Dean did and turned state's evidence. There would have been some kind of smoking gun or a deathbed confession. But why didn't they crack? Because they had come face to face with the living God. They could not deny what they had seen. The fact is that people will give their lives for what they believe is true, but they will never give their lives for what they know is a lie. The Watergate cover-up proves that 12 powerful men in modern-day America couldn't keep a lie and that 12 powerless men 2,000 years ago couldn't have been telling anything but the truth. Um, all of this is just more and more evidence for why we should follow Jesus. You know, it's been said that there is more concrete history in certain chapters of the Bible than in the entire religious works of other movements. Um, in, in just one chapter of the Bible, there's more history than in, for example, the entire Koran or the writings of Buddha or the Vedas of, of Hinduism. Now you say, why is that so important? Well, each historical fact is one more chance for it to be wrong or for it to be right. You can, you can test it. It's not just here are my ideas on life, um, you take them or leave them. No, it's, it's tied into actual objective truth, things that actually happened. And you can check to see if those things are true or false, and then that leads you whether or not to believe the, the, the more subjective things, like, like how, to, how, to go to, how to go to heaven, uh, how, to, how to go through Jesus and, 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 and go to heaven. Well, you can believe that if all the other objective things that you can test, the testable things, uh, turn out to be true. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Now we're coming to Luke chapter 3, and we'll spend the remainder of our time in this chapter. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonidas, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Now you just say, that is like the most boring verse ever, okay? Who, who wants to memorize that and say that it's their life verse? Well, look here. There are 16 
historical facts in this one, one verse, one verse in the entire Bible. 15th, Tiberius, his title, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, that's four, Governor five, Judea six, Herod seven, title, Tetrarch eight, place, Galilee nine, Philip, person in history, 10, his title, 11, Tetrarch, um, 12, Iteria, Draconidus, 13, uh, Lysanias, 14, Tetrarch, 15, Abilene, 16. There are 16 ways for the Bible to be wrong or right just in that one verse. Now, we go back to Pastor Eric's quote uh, from last Sunday from Dr. J.O. Kinneman, biblical archaeologist. He said, of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by other archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. Now let's look at the voice that came after the 400-year silence. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 are the last two verses of what we refer to as the Old Testament. This is from 400 B.C. See, I will send the prophet Elijah. Um, this is a prophecy of John the Baptist, who, a prophet who would come in the spirit of Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. You're like, what do you mean about that? Uh, Jesus born in the, a baby in Bethlehem, a great and dreadful day? Well, you see, Jesus divides all of human history. Most important decision you'll ever make is what will you do with Jesus? And when Christ came, it brought judgment and bad news to those who did not receive him. We know it is good news because we have received him. But it's, it's the day of judgment for those that do not receive him. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else, okay, we can follow Christ and, and, and love. We can have a relationship with God and love. We can have a relationship with each other. Or else, if we reject Christ, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And there would not be another word from God for 400 years, four centuries. Uh, his last words say that a prophet Elijah will come, like Elijah, will come. And that was John the Baptist. He would prepare the hearts of the people for Jesus by urging people to repent of their sins. Uh, Jesus' coming would bring unity and peace, but also it would bring judgment on those that re refuse to turn from their sins and to receive him. So after this 400-year silence, here it comes in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came. 400 years of silence. The word of God came to John, that's who we refer to as John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, repentance before forgiveness. Before you can be forgiven, you've got to Repent. Repentance has to happen before forgiveness can take place. Verse 3, he went to all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This word repentance is from the Greek word metanoia, which means sorrow for sin that leads us to turn from our sin to God. Now comes a 700-year-old 
prophecy by Isaiah about the coming of John the Baptist in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. He will come and he will bring salvation. It will be available for everyone. Now, John the Baptist is going to confront a certain sins because you, you got to be confronted with your sin and, and, and be sorrowful for it and repent of it before we can experience the good news of forgiveness and of grace. And it's interesting with the crowds here, he deals with four different sins that he confronts them about so that you got to experience the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. And the first one he confronts is the sin of arrogance. Um, now, there's going to be two Greek words we're going to look at. Uh, one is oklos, uh, which uh, means crowd. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 7. So the first group of people, they come, that's the crowd. But then eventually, those that are repent, those that stick around, when he starts calling out their sin, the crowd begins to disappear. But then after the crowd disappears, then later in verses 15 and 18, you have the laos, which is the people. The people of God remain once the crowd disappears. When sin starts getting confronted, the crowd goes away, but the people of God remain and, and repent and receive the good news of grace and forgiveness. He's going to confront the crowd with their sins. And if they stick around, they're going to become God's people. He's going to question their motives. Are you coming out here to hear me? Because it's kind of the popular, cool thing to do in Jerusalem these days. Or do you, or do you, really, do you really want to repent? Do you think you're God's chosen people just because of the country you were born in, which for them was Israel, they were the Jewish people, their, their spiritual father, their, their actual father was, uh, literal father through the generations was Abraham. Uh, do you think you're God's chosen people just because of where uh, you were born? Or are you gonna live like God wants you to live? Are you gonna repent and live like he wants you to? And so we pick it up now, verse seven. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. A changed life because of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I mean, we were, we were born Israelites. We were born the Jewish people. You know, just because we were born here, we are automatically God's favorites, his chosen people. Um, we're right with God. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, uh, the, the judgment was gonna come and unless they repented and produced good fruit, the fruit of a changed life, they were gonna be cut down and thrown into the fire. God's judgment would come. Another sin he confronts is the sin of selfishness. It says in verse 10, what should we do then? Which is great. I mean, the crowd is asking the right questions. Okay, 
Tell us what to do then. And so John answered in, in, in verse 11, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. So he confronts the sin of arrogance, the sin of selfishness, now the sin of greed. Verse 12, even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And so the tax collectors, he says, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. You see, the way that tax collectors made their money was Rome told them to collect a certain amount, and if they charged extra beyond that amount, which was very oppressive to the people, they got to keep the difference. So he said, repent of the sin of greed and charge what you're supposed to. And then the sin of oppression, of using your position to oppress other people, verse 14. Then some soldiers ask him, and what should we do? He replied, okay, don't abuse your position. Don't use your authority to exhort money. They could pressure people to give them money and don't accuse people falsely. So they could say, look, I'm gonna accuse you falsely if you don't give me a certain amount of money. And, and that's oppression uh, based on their position of power. Be content with your pay. Now, John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 15, he says, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat, those that receive Christ, into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff, those that reject Christ, with unquenchable, with unquenchable fires. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now, now just let's hold that there for just one moment. The people who stayed through the bad news got to receive the good news. Remember the, the Greek word, oklos? The, the crowd, they left. But the laos, the people of God, they remained. And the people who stayed through the bad news, crowd left, they stayed. They got to receive the good news. It is only when we appreciate the bad news that, that we need to be forgiven. We need a savior I always say that, say three words to God. If God's convicting you right now, just say those three words, sorry, thanks, and please. Say, God, I'm sorry, I, I've heard the bad news. I mean, if I were standing there, John the Baptist would have looked at me. If I, if I were, Glenn Gunderson was standing there by the, the, the Dead Sea in the wilderness, and John the Baptist looked at me and he said, Glenn Gunderson, you are selfish, you are arrogant, um, you, you, you are greedy, uh, you you don't take care of people the way that you should. You are oppressive. And I would have said, God, I am sorry, I repent. But then thank you for the good news of Jesus, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. So say sorry, say thank you, and then say please, please, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior for the forgiveness of my sins, and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. And then you show that publicly publicly by being baptized. Um, it's only 
when we appreciate the bad news that we can fully appreciate the good news. Uh, as followers of Christ also, we need to be willing to share the bad news with other people as well as just the good news, which leads us to our next point, the courage to speak the truth. It says in verse 19, and John the Baptist is such a great illustration of this. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. And we know later in the story that he eventually executed him, uh, beheaded him. Now this is Herod Antipas here, who stole um, his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. So uh, they were married, but he goes and steals her from, from him. And isn't it interesting that even today, Christ followers are unpopular because of their beliefs about sexual sin. Um, John, John the Baptist, 2,000 years ago, called him out for his sexual sin. And followers of Christ are unpopular for standing up for sexual morality, even today, the way John the Baptist was. I love this quote by Rick Warren. Uh, Pastor Eric sent this to me, and I tell you, this is the greatest quote ever. I, I want to have it tattooed somewhere on me. Somebody is going to be upset with you every minute of your life. <laughs> is, is that, <clears throat> that is the pandemic quote right there. Somebody is going to be upset with you every minute of your life. Isn't that true? Somebody, some opinion you have or some belief that you have, somebody's mad at you about that. Somebody's upset with you every minute of your life. So here's the point. You might as well, it might as well be for speaking the truth. If everybody's going to be mad at you anyway, it might as well be for speaking the truth. And then finally, the ministry of Jesus begins. Uh, Pastor Eric and Pastor Claire, a couple of Sundays ago, very interesting. They said only Matthew and Luke of the two of the four gospels talk about the birth of Jesus. And then only one of the four, Luke, talks about who they call middle school Jesus. And that was such a great, great sermon. So the, the gospel writers, they pick different things to emphasize in their four biographies of Jesus. But this is interesting. All four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the biographers of Jesus' life, all of them talk about the baptism of Jesus because it was the launch of his ministry. It was so important at the launch of his ministry, his baptism, that all four mention it. Uh, Luke does as well. Luke 3.21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, not because he was a sinner in need of repentance, but as a way of identifying himself with those he came to save. He, did, he didn't need to have a baptism of repentance, but he wanted to identify with those that did need him to die on the cross so that they could be saved. Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened. Isn't that a great reminder for the coming year? Pastor Eric last Sunday challenged us about our prayer life in 2022, and just think about that. When we pray, heaven is opened. And, and, and what a great challenge that is. Let's, let's be a church of prayer. Let's be people of prayer in 2022, because when we pray, heaven opens up. Okay, let's wrap things up. Verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, 
You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And so the greatest movement in all of world history is launched. And you and I, you and I get to be a part of it. What an awesome, wonderful privilege to be a part of the greatest movement in all of human history. And all God's family said, Amen and Amen. Look around you. There's so much work to do. This world is in no condition for us to simply sit back and watch. There is a tangible, desperate need for Jesus. A glimpse of hope in the midst of hopelessness. Jesus experienced this. He saw it firsthand. The need broke his heart and filled him with compassion. He turned to his disciples and said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This alone should stir our hearts. It's a calling, a calling to make a difference, to share the truth of the gospel, to be a light in the darkness, to be the church. It's time for us to look beyond ourselves, to turn our focus to the field, to answer the call and passionately share the love of Jesus. This is our mandate. This is our mission. Are you ready to do the work?